Hopefully you all get a, got a bulletin insert that we'll get to in a while. We're almost six weeks into the new year, which means most of us who made a New Year's resolution have already broken it enough times to give up till next year, maybe try again. They tell us that almost 70% of Americans would have made some kind of New Year's resolution, which presumably means some of us here in the room. They also say that only 8% of us will still be keeping it after six months, and 36% of us would have stopped the first month, so a third of us have already quit. New Year's resolutions have been a long custom of people. Uh, many cultures want to break bad habits, start good ones. 4,000 years ago in Babylon, long before the Jews ended up there in captivity, the Babylonians are known to have celebrated New Year's and historians credit them with originating the tradition of New Year's resolutions. A common Babylonian resolution was returning something borrowed from a friend the previous year. Uh, maybe a resolution for somebody here this morning. 2,000 years ago, back in the time of Christ, the Romans had their New Year's resolutions. A typical one for them uh, was seeking forgiveness of their enemies from the past year. Hopefully that's not necessary for any of us. But New Year's resolutions, of course, are alive and well and broken today in the 21st century. Supposedly the top 10 uh, most common resolutions here in America the past year were these. Eat better, exercise more, spend less money, get more sleep, read more books, learn a new skill, get a new job, make new friends, get a new hobby, focus on relationships. Can you identify with any of those? Maybe, maybe some of you made one or more of those this past month. You know, there's lots of pagan traditions associated with the new year. New Year's resolutions, our uh, son and his family, I think we probably mentioned this before, he pastors an international church in Malaysia. Malaysia is really big on the Chinese New Year, which you may have heard was started. At, at, there's a day, but then there's weeks of celebrating the Chinese New Year. We've been there a couple times now, right about now. We're usually there basking in the sun and the heat. <laughs> but this year we decided to wait. They're coming home to us instead. But anyway, uh, the, the, they make a big, big deal out of the New Year's celebration, and it goes on for days and days and days and even weeks. And there's nothing wrong, even though there's a lot of pagan associations with New Year's celebrations, New Year's resolutions, but there's nothing wrong with the Christians making resolutions any time of year. The Apostle Paul made resolutions. 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That word decided means resolved. Some translations actually use the word resolved. I resolve, I make a resolution to do this. Philippians 3.13, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize. That's a resolution. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Another resolution. Nothing wrong with resolutions as long as they don't go against scripture. And you could argue that most any of the resolutions in that top ten list could have a biblical basis to it, be a legitimate resolution for a Christian. But this morning I want to suggest to you another ten New Year's resolutions for you and me. And to be sure that they are worthy of our consideration, we use our Bibles as the basis for them. And just so you know, these don't have to be New Year's resolutions. These can be made anytime, and they're resolutions that will be good from now till the Lord takes us home to heaven. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the very middle of your Bible. The exact center is supposedly Psalm 117, which also happens to be the shortest 
psalm, the shortest uh, chapter in the Bible. Turn the page over from there, and you're to Psalm 119, which happens to be the longest psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible. And we're going to glean our resolutions from this psalm, Psalm 119. Let me just give you a little introduction for those of you who may not be familiar with how Psalm 119 is put together. Uh, The author is unknown to us, maybe David, probably not. The layout consists of 22 paragraphs, 22 sections. There are eight verses in each, 22 times eight, 176 verses altogether. Psalm 119 is written as an acrostic. Let me explain to you how I'm using that term. If you look above the first paragraph in most Bibles, you'll see the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, A-L-E-P-H. In the original Hebrew, the first word of each verse in verses 1 through 8 begins with that letter, Aleph. Paragraph 2, headed by the word Bet, B-E-T-H, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each of the verses in 9 through 16 begins with the word beginning with the, word, with the letter Bet. And we, of course, can't see that in our English translations. Incidentally, Aleph, Bet, that'd be the equivalent of the Greek Alpha, Beta, from which we get our word, Alphabet. But unlike our alphabet of 26 letters, there's only 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So therefore, only 22 paragraphs in the psalm. Go to verse 169. There's paragraph 22. And there's the last letter of the alphabet, Tav. Remember when Christ referred to himself in Revelation as the Alpha and Omega? That would be the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Aleph and Tav, equivalent to the English A and Z. Christ said he's the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. So there's your acrostic, 22 sections, each verse in each section beginning with the letter at the top of that section. Another notable thing about this psalm is that almost all, not quite all, but almost all of the 176 verses make some reference to the word of God. There's about 10 different Hebrew words, synonyms that are used. Depending on your translation, I'll be using the ESV here. You'll find the words law, saying, command, statute, word, path, rule, judgment, precept, testimony, way. Most of those will appear in our passage this morning. At least half of them were in the scripture reading that Steve did at the beginning of the first eight verses. So with that introduction, let's find some resolutions in the second paragraph of this psalm, verses 9 through 16. I'll give you the resolution first in case you want to fill in the blanks on your handout, and then we'll talk about it. So resolution number one, I resolve to live a life that's pure by God's standards. I resolve to live a life that's pure by God's standards. Look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to to your word. Now, why does it say young man? Well, as I already said, we don't know who the author is. Maybe he was young. Maybe he was an older man, uh, remembering the temptations of his youth. David, David actually prayed back in Psalm 25 that God would not remember the sins of his youth. Uh, maybe it's a young man asking the psalmist this question. We just don't know. Does it mean that older men and all women and children can just ignore this verse? Well, of course not. It's simply a recognition that young men back then, as today, can tend to be more susceptible to the temptations, a lot of the temptations of this world. But the resolution is the same for all of us. I resolve to live a life that's pure. Well, what is purity? Well, the dictionary definition is being free from that which spoils or corrupts. And in this Bible context, it's the opposite of giving in to the lust of the flesh. And I'd remind you that lust is not just a sexual thing. I can have a lust 
uh, for junk food. I do have a lust for junk food. Chocolate is not junk food. I can have a lust for junk television. I can have a lust for junk movies, books, magazines, music, video games. And I shouldn't just say junk, because lust can be an unbalanced desire for good things. I can have a lust for good food. I can have a lust for good television. If I have enough television channels, I could sit and watch good television all day long. That probably wouldn't be what God would have for me. Uh, I can have a lust for sports, politics, internet, Facebook, Twitter, gardening, woodworking, work, leisure. Purity is freedom from those kind of unbalanced desires, unbalanced desires. So how do I do this? How do I live a pure life? By guarding my way, by living according to God's word. And we'll be talking about that more as we move through this passage. Remember when Christ prayed for his disciples in John 17? He prayed that God would sanctify them, would purify them. How? In the truth. And Christ said, your word is truth. God's word is truth. It's through appropriating that truth that we are purified. It's good to remind ourselves of 2 Timothy 2.21. If you cleanse yourself, you'll be a vessel, an instrument, useful for the master, set apart as holy, needy, ready for every good work. And, and the clear implication of that is, conversely, if I don't cleanse myself, I'm not an instrument that God can use. Incidentally, there's a comparable verse to Psalm 119.9 over in 1 John 2. It says this, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Young men, the word of God abides in you, you have overcome. How can a young man and all the rest of us keep his way pure? By guarding it according to God's word. I resolve to live a life that's pure by God's standards. All right, number two, I resolve to seek God with all my heart. I resolve to seek God with all my heart. And look at verse 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. With my whole heart, I seek you. Do you remember God's promise to the exiles in Jeremiah 29? He said, you will seek me and find me when? When you search for me with your whole heart. Look at verse 2 right here in the Psalms. Steve already read it for us. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek, with, who seek him with their whole heart. What's the promise there? They'll be blessed. Who will be? Those who seek the Lord with their whole heart. Now, most of us can probably quote Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. Are you having a problem knowing God's direction in your life? Well, I encourage you to take those verses to heart, to your whole heart. Christ told his disciples, nobody can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money, God and possessions. But that principle can apply to many areas. You can't serve God and yourself, God and your job. God and your spouse, your friends, your leisure. Remember the problem with the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3? You're neither cold nor hot. And because you're lukewarm, Christ says, I will spit you, literally I'll vomit you out of my mouth. What was their only hope? Repent and be zealous. Zealous is a synonym for wholehearted. I resolved to seek God with all my heart, not lukewarm, not trying to serve two masters. All right, number three, I resolve to not wander from God's commands. I resolve to not wander from God's commands. The rest of verse 10, 
wholeheartedly seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Let me not wander. While we're right here, look at verse 21. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Go over to verse 118. I'm going to have to turn a couple pages for that. 118, you spurn all those who go astray from your statutes. Let me not wander from your commandments. You know, the Bible tells us we Christians are on a journey through a foreign land. We're strangers and exiles. We just saying that. I wrote it down here to, so I wouldn't forget it. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way when we're leaning on the everlasting arms. But we do have a destination. We do have a path to follow. We're not just wandering like the children of Israel in the desert for 40 years, finally getting to cross over to the promised land. But unfortunately, uh, many of us Christians are in a wandering mood. We, when's the last time you sang the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it? Hopefully you'll all say within the past 15 minutes, because you did, right? Straying in the strange land. And though it may be fun for a while, it can end up causing us nothing but grief. Well, what's the reason for wandering? Look at the very familiar verse 105 in the psalm. 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Apostle Peter also likened scripture to a lamp shining in a dark place. I mean, picture, picture yourself deep in the woods on a dark night and your, your flashlight dies, your smartphone dies, and you're no longer on target and you start to wander. You're not sure where you're going. Too many of us are trying to find our way through this dark world without the light of God's word to keep us on the right path. There's an interesting verse in Proverbs 21 that says this, a man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the congregation of the dead. In other words, the wanderer is as good as dead. He's useless to God. He's useless to the church. You know, a problem with the Pharisees was they knew God's word, but they strayed every imaginable direction away from it, and their, their traditions had made God's word void. And Christ called them hypocrites. He quoted a verse from Isaiah, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They even honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They've wandered. They've strayed far off course. Some of us may need to pray the very last verse of this psalm. Look at 176. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Seek your servant. I resolve to not wander from God's commands. All right, number four. I resolve to treasure God's word. I resolve to treasure God's word. And let's go back to verse 11. In our, in our paragraph, verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've stored up, I've hidden, I've treasured. You know, we've recently come through the Christmas season. We were reminded two different times in Luke chapter 2 where Mary treasured up in her heart all the truths of this Christ child. The psalmist says, I've treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And not just the beginning of a new year, but any time is a good time to do some evaluation, to make a resolution. Just how am I doing in my walk with the Lord? How am I growing? How am I maturing since being born into God's family, whether a year ago or 50 years ago? Am I still a baby, only wanting milk? I can't, can't handle the meat of the word. Have I gotten stuck in the terrible twos? Maybe I'm at that stage where I'm fighting with my spiritual siblings all the time. A teenager rebelling against a heavenly father? Am I just not getting victory over certain sins in my life? I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin. 
which begs the question, how much do I treasure God's word? How much do I store it up in my life? Am I content with just hearing it here on Sunday? Am I content with just uh, reading it five minutes every morning or 25 minutes every morning, but then forgetting it the rest of the day? Kids can teach us a lot about treasures, can't they? May I treasure God's word as much as my daughter treasured her baby blankie. My 44-year-old daughter still has her baby blankie. Psalm 37, 31 tells us the law of God is in the heart of the righteous. His steps do not slip. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly, abundantly, not just a Sunday morning nickel's worth. I resolve to treasure God's word. All right, number five, I resolve to be teachable. I resolve to be teachable. Back to verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Verse 26, teach me your statutes. Verse 64, teach me your statutes. Verse 68, teach me your statutes. Verse 108, teach me your rules. Back to 124, teach me your statutes. 135, teach me your statutes. 171, my lips will pour forth praise. Why? Because you teach me your statutes. Do you get the message here that the psalmist thinks we ought to be asking God to teach us? You know, when I get around to uh, projects at our house, which my wife would say would not be nearly often enough, I have a tendency to not worry too much about directions. If there are directions, I just kind of jump in and see what happens. A little knowledge can be a dangerous thing, and sometimes I suffer the consequences to that. Most of you married men can identify with not stopping for directions when your wife thinks you're lost. I didn't say when you think you're lost, of course we're going to stop when we think we're lost. We have a tendency not to be teachable, and I'm talking to the ladies now as well. And unfortunately, such a characteristic carries over into our walk with the Lord. Uh, Whether it's the Lord trying to teach us directly through his word, day in and day out, or indirectly through a pastor, a spouse, a friend, a parent, a child, Christian book, a radio preacher, whatever. We tend to not be teachable. David had the right idea in Psalm 25 when he prayed this. Lord, show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. On you I will wait all the day. Teach me, Lord. I resolve to be teachable. Number six, I resolve to share God's word with others. I resolve to share God's word with others. Go on to verse 13. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. And then look at verse 46. Verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. That reminds me of Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How can I be ashamed? How can I be embarrassed of something that means the difference between heaven and hell for a person? Sometimes we are, aren't we? Peter tells us we need to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us about the hope that's within us. Even better than that is the attitude of Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. What did they say? We can't help but speaking what we've seen and heard. We cannot keep quiet. Don't tell us to keep quiet. We cannot keep quiet. May we be able to say with David in Psalm 40, I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I resolve to share God's word with others. 
All right, number seven. I resolve to value spiritual riches over earthly things. I resolve to value spiritual riches over earthly things. And for this, verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. The NIV says it this way. I rejoice in following your statutes as one who rejoices in great riches. In other words, as a Christian, I delight in God's word just as a non-Christian would delight in getting rich. I was standing in line at a gas station one day behind somebody buying a lottery ticket, and the cashier was all excited because she had just won $100 the day before in the lottery. And you'd think she'd won the million-dollar jackpot the way she was carrying on with her excitement. $100 was probably a lot of money for her. As a Christian, I delight in God's word just as a non-Christian would delight in getting rich. Look at verse 111. 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Go over to 162. 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Then go back to verse 72. Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Is that true? Can I say that God's word's more precious to me than money? And not just being a hearer here on Sunday or a reader through the week, but being a doer of it? Do I value that more than money? And if I say yes, does my lifestyle back that up or contradict it? You know, we live in a society that's totally contrary to laying up treasures in heaven, where they're safe from being eaten by the moths, corroded by rust, stolen by thieves, Sermon on the Mount, safe from the roller coaster stock market. That's not the popular thing to do, is it? Instead, we tend to be like the rich man in Luke 12. What did he do? Tore down the barns so he could build bigger ones to store all his crops, accommodate all his things. And the day that he died, what did God call him? You're a fool. You're a fool for laying up treasures for yourself instead of being rich toward God. It was six years ago this past month. Some of you may remember the story, the sad news of uh, Sam and Barbara Garland, an elderly couple down in Pekin who died in a fire. Their house was full of stuff from top to bottom. They were apparently just living in a little room in the basement. And obviously there were some mental health issues involved there. But I see a parallel between that and how an awful lot of us Christians live, just filling our barns, filling our lives with the stuff of this world, whether literally or figuratively, instead of laying up our treasures in heaven. How much better to emulate Moses? According to the Hebrews 11, it says, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He, he could conceivably have been the next Pharaoh of Egypt. Instead, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, Rather than to choose the pleasures of sin for a short time, and there are pleasures in sin in a short, for a short time, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? How could he do that? The rest of the verse. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. He was looking ahead to his reward. Moses was able to see beyond the temporal, gain an eternal perspective on things. You know, many of us Christians have a severe case of nearsightedness. We just can't manage to see beyond this life. All that's important to us is the here and the now. I resolve to value spiritual riches over earthly things, the eternal over the temporal. Number eight, 
Number eight, I resolve to meditate on God's word. I resolve to meditate on God's word. Back to verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. This ties in closely with resolution number four, I resolve to treasure God's word. If I treasure it, I'll meditate on it. That Hebrew word for meditation literally means to mumble, to speak to yourself. In other words, go over a matter in your mind. And in this context, to focus your mind on scripture. You know, it's pretty much a lost art today, though it's certainly encouraged in the Bible. Uh, right here in this psalm, look at uh, the end of verse 23. Your servant will meditate on your statutes. The end of verse 27, I will meditate on your wondrous works. Go to the end of verse 78. For me, I will meditate on your precepts. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Meditation itself isn't necessarily a lost art. We all focus our minds on something. That's why David prays in Psalm 19:14, may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And again in Psalm 104, may my meditation be pleasing to God. A way to help assure that is to put into practice Philippians 4:8. Think, meditate on what? Those things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. And a way to assure that Meditate on God's word. Let me remind you of the formula for success given by God to Joshua when he said this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then, once you've meditated and obeyed, then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Success by God's definition. I think a significant reason that we don't do too well on meditating on God's word these days is that we just allow our ears to be continually bombarded by sound. Uh, radio, TV, CDs, MP3s, internet, elevator music, there's always something. There needs to be a time where we can just shut it all off and, and just sit in silence, reflect on God and his word and allow him to speak to us in that still small voice that we never hear because of all the noise. I resolve to meditate on God's word. Number nine, I resolve to submit myself to doing things God's way. I resolve to submit myself to doing things God's way. The rest of verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Fix my eyes, focus my eyes on what? God's ways rather than my own. Back to Psalm 25 one more time. David says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. A tradition uh, for some of our family and friends over the years has been playing Trivial Pursuit when we're together at Christmas. And one piece of trivia that I learned, and I'm sure you'll want to know, is that one of the top songs out there in karaoke land, at least it was back when this game was created that we played, the top song was Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way my way. You might have heard that at John McCain's funeral if you watched the funeral on television. I think that was the song as they were processing, uh, re recessing out of the building after the funeral. Let me remind you some of the words of that song. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. 
I did it my way. I fear that way too many of us Christians, when the end is near, we face the final curtain, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that the song that may best describe us might be, I did it my way. And we're going to be sorry, too late, if that's the case. I resolved to do things God's way. And why? Well, for one thing, Isaiah reminds us, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways, his thoughts higher than ours. Isaiah is the same one who reminds us that we are like sheep going astray, each of us heading off in our own direction. Last verse of Hosea says, The ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. David tells us in Psalm 18, God's way is perfect. Habakkuk 3.6, God's ways are everlasting. There's that eternal perspective again. And if that's all true, how can, and it is, how can I be so arrogant, how can I be so stupid, is to insist on my own way. I need to fix my eyes on God's ways over mine. There's a very sobering statement in Psalm 106.15. says this, God gave them what they asked for, but he also sent a wasting disease among them. It's referring back to the story in Numbers 11, where the children of Israel just complaining about all this manna. They wanted meat. So God sent them quail in abundance, but with it came a plague. He gave them their way, but there was a high price to pay, a, a very great plague, it says. I resolved to submit myself to doing things God's way. And incidentally, the Hebrew scholars tell us that the verb forms used in this verse 15 are the cohortative, which means this, I will meditate. I will fix my eyes. They express the author's resolve. I resolve. I make a resolution to meditate, to do things God's way. All right, number 10, I resolve to delight in rather than forget God's word. I resolve to delight in rather than forget God's word. And look at verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That word delight is very emphatic in the Hebrew, as in I will skip about and jump for joy. Now, some personalities lend themselves to skipping about and jumping for joy. Uh, there's others like me that are kind of dull, not given to a highly visible expression of delight. But for both of us, the question is this. What are the things that bring us happiness and excitement and delight and enthusiasm? Is God's word ever on that list? Now go to the websites of Wycliffe Bible Translators, New Tribes Mission, other ones that are involved in Bible translation. Read about the celebrations that are held when a, a remote tribe finally has the Bible in their own language. You'll see videos on these websites of the celebration. And these festivities can go on for days on end. And for some, it's literally skipping about and jumping for joy. They finally have God's word in their language, in their hands. Does God's word ever bring us that kind of delight? Look at verse 24. Verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. Go to verse 70. The end of the verse. I delight in your law. Go to verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Go to 143. The end of 143. Your commandments are my delight. Go to 174. Your law is my delight. 
Go back to verse 47. Verse 47. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Which I love. Maybe we need to ask God to give us a love for his word. A love that will make us want to read it and study it and meditate on it and put it into practice. A a love that will make us treasure it, skip about and jump for joy, whether figuratively or literally. Can we say with Jeremiah, your words were found and I ate them, I listened and claimed them, I appropriated them into my life, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. I assume we all did a lot of eating over the Christmas and New Year's holidays, probably too much, which is why dieting is typically right at the top of that list of 10 New Year's resolutions. I mean, how much of our eating came from God's word over those holidays and in the days since? Do we find the kind of joy and delight in that that Jeremiah did? Do we delight in eating God's word as much as we delight in our three square meals a day and all the snacking in between? Most of us need to be admonished by Paul's words to Timothy, and with this we close. Into the New Testament, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. But as for you, this is Paul talking to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Here's the very familiar verse 16. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, competent, equipped for every good work. Verse 14, continue in what you have learned. And for Timothy, we know from chapter 1 that that's a reference to his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, who faithfully taught him God's word as a boy. Continue in what you have learned. I resolve to delight in rather than forget God's word. If I forget it, I obviously don't delight in it. If I delight in it, I, I obviously can't forget it. We won't turn back to it, but the last words of Psalm 119 are these. I do not forget your commandments. I do not forget your commandments. Well, if I could only have one resolution, if I had to boil these ten down to one, what would it be? Well, how about the one that I've written there at the bottom of your handout? I resolve to make God's word an integral part of my life in 2019 and beyond. Integral, an essential part of the whole, necessary for completeness. I resolve to make God's word an indispensable part of my life. And may God help us to do just that as we head into a new week of a new month in this new year. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for choosing to reveal yourself through the Bible. Thank you for showing us how to live and how to please you. Pray that you would give us a love for your word. Give us a hunger for it. May we know what it is to delight in it. And may we store it up, may we hide it in our hearts, that it may in turn keep us from sin and be our light through this increasingly dark world of 2019. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.